We're continuing with our series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the list of blessings which he gave, which are generally known as the Beatitudes. Today we're looking at Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And my wife Jane is going to read the passage to put it in context for us. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When I read these statements of Jesus, I do wish there was an exam-like rubric at the end which said something like, Candidates should not attempt more than three from the following list. You see, we have the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers. But we also have those who are zealous for righteousness and also the pure in heart. No single person is going to be able to tick all these boxes, but they are all different aspects of the character of God. Over the years, we Christians have had a tendency to concentrate on just one aspect of God's character, and we can overlook some of the other aspects. In this day and age, we seem to be particularly focused on God's love and mercy. Now, that's fine that God is love is expressly stated in Scripture, but the, the problem with an overemphasis on love is that if we are not careful, we can end up condoning evil. For example, we say, that poor Adolf Hitler, he had an awful childhood and we must be nice about him. No, what Hitler did was pure evil. So we must not forget that God is also a God of righteousness and justice, and that at the end of time, every human being will stand before God as judge. Suppose some friends who live abroad get in touch and say, we're coming to Britain for a holiday this summer and hiring a car. What speed can we do on your motorways? Now we could answer, well, most police forces, before they give you a ticket, operate a system of 10% plus 2 miles per hour over the limit. And most car speedometers tend to overread a bit. So provided your speedometer needle doesn't go above, say, 80, you'll probably be all right. But that is not the answer to the question. The answer is that the speed limit on British motorways is 70 miles per hour. Now, our friends may say, 70, that's ridiculously slow. We're going to drive at 100 miles per hour. But at least they know what the true position is, and they have only themselves to blame if they get speeding fines. Now, I tell you that story because it seems to me that we Christians are often reluctant to tell non-believers the truth. We water it down and tend not to talk in terms of biblical truth, and we definitely avoid mentioning God's righteousness and his justice. I don't know about you, but to be honest, I shy away from saying things like, look, the ultimate destiny of all humans is eternal torment in hell. The only way you can avoid that destiny is if you accept Jesus as your savior. But Jesus' death on the cross is compelling evidence that God is not only a God of love, but also a God of righteousness and justice. The starting point was that because of humankind's rebellion against God, we were all destined for hell. 
Now, a God who was only a God of love would surely have said, oh, your sin and rebellion doesn't really matter. Come and have eternal life with me. But a God of justice and righteousness demands that the correct punishment is applied. So to satisfy the requirements of righteousness, God actually became a human being and died an agonizing and humiliating death, nailed naked to a cross in full public view, so that the just and righteous penalty for our sin and rebellion was paid. So now there is a way to avoid eternity in hell, but there is only one way, and that is by going humbly to Jesus in prayer and saying, Lord Jesus, in your mercy, forgive me. I don't know about you, but I don't like having to talk about people spending eternity in hell and in torment. But one of the things that spurs me on is this. If the penalty for our sin was just that when we die, we cease to exist, I cannot see that God would have sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. The fact that Jesus was prepared to undergo such a traumatic death strongly indicates to me that he did it because he knew that otherwise our destination was unbelievably appalling. God is calling us as a church to get ready, and I think that as part of our getting ready, God is challenging some of us and asking, do you really hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God? You see, the natural bias of fallen humans is to turn away from God. And we Christians are supposed to be salt and light, explaining to people in ways they can comprehend what God's standards are. Down the ages, there are lots of examples of Christians doing this. A well-known one is William Wilberforce. At the time Wilberforce lived, Caribbean sugar was important to the economy of this country. And most people thought that the sugar plantations could not be run profitably without slave labor. So Wilberforce had to confront and challenge people to change their minds and to see that slavery was not an economic benefit, but was offensive to God. Today, there is a desperate need for Christians to proclaim and explain God's righteous standards. Like the friends coming to drive in this country wanting to know the speed limit, our duty is to tell people the truth. Everybody has free will, so they can make up their own minds about whether what we say is correct or not. But if I am right and their eternal destination is torment in hell, I don't want anybody to be able to say to God at the day of judgment, God, this isn't fair, no Christian ever warned me. Can I suggest that in this country we Christians have been tame and quiet for too long? I fear that to quote what the prophet Jeremiah said in the Bible, we Christians have dressed the wound of the people as though they were not serious. We have said to non-believers, peace, peace, your behavior is fine. When what in truth we should have said is, I'm really sorry, but your ways are offensive to God. Turn from them and live. And as a result, there are many in our society today who have no idea of God's righteousness. Because we Christians have failed to speak out, there are many who do not even realize that the Bible is their creator's handbook, explaining to them how they should live. Today is, of course, St. Valentine's Day, when lots of people remember love and romance. And this is just one of the key areas of life where, because we Christians have remained silent, 
Our society is going down paths that bear no relation to God's blueprint set out in the Bible. Actually, the Bible has much to say about love and marriage because it is all part of God's amazing plan for his creation. Firstly, the Bible tells us that when God created us, he made us male and female. Contrary to some worldly theories which are being powerfully argued at the moment, the Bible is clear that God did not make us in many genders, just male and female. And a man and a woman shall leave their parents and be united in marriage. So, as Jesus explained later in Matthew's Gospel, they are no longer two but one. And Jesus added, Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. The act of sexual intercourse is joining that couple together such that in God's eyes they are no longer two but one. Whilst you are both alive, you can only be united in this way to one other person. So it is unarguably clear from the Bible that sexual intercourse is not a leisure activity. It is something that must only take place within the context of marriage. God's plan is that a virgin man and a virgin woman should get married and then and only then come together in sexual intercourse. Marriage, when a man and a woman stand up before witnesses and declare that they take each other for life, is the most stable relationship known to humans. And it is also the essential building block of all civilized societies, a place where children are brought up in safety and security. And in many ways, sexual intercourse is the vital glue that helps to hold marriage together, which is why God provided it for our enjoyment and implanted within us great desires for it. But sexual intercourse is also very fragile. If it's used outside marriage, it can easily be damaged. Previous generations recognized this and set up structures in society to protect people, particularly young adults, from misusing sexual intercourse. But our current society thinks they know better and have really abandoned all pretense that sexual intercourse is a God-given blessing to be enjoyed only within the confines of marriage. You know, it's as if God had given each of us a brand new Rolls-Royce Phantom motor car, and instead of treating it as we should, we have just used it as if it were the works van. We've stored stepladders in the back which have deeply scratched the beautiful wood veneers. We've thrown saws and chisels on the seats, cutting the leather upholstery. And we have destroyed the deep pile carpets by slopping paint on them. But instead of explaining that sexual intercourse is God's gift for marriage, we Christians have largely been silent. I suspect that many of us know that we too have failed to keep God's standards in this area and we feel that we would be hypocrites to tell others to behave in a way which we ourselves have not achieved. But can I suggest that's a misunderstanding? Let me go back to my story about friends coming to drive in this country. Almost all of us who drive cars have, from time to time, failed to stick to the speed limit. But that doesn't make us hypocrites if we tell our friends that 70 miles per hour is the speed limit. We are merely imparting the truth. Equally, the truth is that sexual intercourse is a gift from God, but it is for those who are married to each other only. So let me summarize. God is a God of love, but he is also a God of righteousness and justice. Secondly, 
as he tells us as a church to get ready, I believe he is challenging us and saying, do you really hunger and thirst for my righteousness to be restored in your society? Do you long for people once again to adhere to biblical standards? Thirdly, perhaps we Christians need to be a little bolder in telling others about God's righteousness. Obviously, we need to learn how to do this in a loving and attractive way, but nevertheless without watering down God's truth. And finally, our passage today ends with the most wonderful promise. If we really hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, he will respond and we shall be filled.